0: Okay, let's get started. Yes. I'm Dan Rundy. I'm a senior vice president here at CSIS. We're having a conversation about maximizing private investment and job impacts.
1: Good to hear. That's my side project. Okay,
0: if you can all have a seat. Just have a seat in the front row. So, uh, I'm Dan Rundy. I'm a senior vice president here at CSIS. We're having a conversation today about maximizing private investment, maximizing private investment and job impacts. I'm really grateful to EDFI, the premier institution that brings together uh, all of the development, the European development finance institutions, and we all follow it, and I think it's a, a real good, great force for good in the world. Thanks for your partnership, uh, EDFI. I've got yeah, DFIs, development finance institutions, um, are playing a much more critical role than 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And I think they're being asked by their shareholders to step up and take on much bigger challenges. We did a report probably three years talking about this called Development Finance Institutions Come of Age. We've been very active here at CSIS um, and we're, we're instrumental in helping get something called the BUILD Act completed, which basically said we needed to put OPIC on steroids. <clears throat> I think we've successfully done that. We've also uh, been active in, in debates such as in Canada In supporting and enabling uh, the development finance institution in Canada. So, uh, we're big fans of development finance. It's also a, there are precise instruments. And so uh, I think it's an appropriate time to have a conversation about maximizing private investment and job impacts, That that balancing both financial returns and development impacts. Before I turn the floor over, I want to do a mini-survey, since this is a very sophisticated and interesting group. How many of you have read the Wise Person's Report of the European Union? Hands please, hands, 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 hands. How many of you are U.S. citizens? and have read that report no and have read that report (laughs) okay I see two hands okay three hands so Team America this report (laughs) is going to be the most consequential report of 2019 in global development so if you haven't read it as an American citizen you need to read it so I'm going to be making it my business over the next three months to be educating US citizens and policymakers about the importance of the wise person's report this is extremely consequential to not only development finance, but the transatlantic relationship. <clears throat> I think we'll have a chance to touch on it. Um, it's, uh, and, but there's a lot more we got to cover in this uh, in this conversation. I'm really pleased um, to introduce uh, Alexander de He's been here before here at CSIS. He's a deputy prime minister and minister of finance. He's on the BIO board, <clears throat> which is the development finance institution. Of Belgium, Alexander Derugue, Gou- come on up here and give us some opening remarks, if you would. Come on up. Thank Thanks so much. Give, please welcome Alexander Derugue. <laughs> Thanks a lot.
1: Good afternoon, everyone, and uh, thank you for the uh, for the kind introduction. We'd like to thank the um, Association of European Development Finance Institutions for organizing this, together with the Center for Strategic International uh, Studies. Um, Talking about development finance is something which is close to my heart because I have a history of being a minister of development, that's what I've been doing the last five years, but since now seven, eight months, I'm also a minister of finance, which um, might sound for a lot of development ministers like the holy grail because I'm mastering the money, and then I would also be the one who can spend it. Unfortunately, my government is in a current affairs situation, which means that we've had elections and that we're waiting for a new government. So um, I think it's a great combination, but I'm kind of limited in what I can, um, what I can do. Still enthusiastic to talk about this, uh, about this topic, because um, I think that we've come a long way in the role of uh, financing and of private financing and developments. I think that there's no discussion anymore that the private sector and private financing is playing a very important role in development. Um, and that role is also accentuated in the Sustainable Development Goals. In the Sustainable Development Goals, there's a lot of talking about the role of the private sector, there's a lot of talking about, uh, about partnership, and that's a great thing. It's not always been that way. And I think that everyone who is active in, uh, in the field of development knows that from time to time, there is still a fight between private sector and uh, public investment. And, and I mean, we, we are not there yet. There is, especially in Parliament, sometimes very heated debates about, is the private sector really playing an important role in development? In my point of view, there's no doubt about that. If you look at the world today, 80 to 90% of the jobs that exist are private sector jobs and the private sector is basically giving everyone the means to survive and to thrive in this uh, in this world and so very happy that it is recognized in the sdgs sdgs that have gotten a lot of things moving but maybe not enough because the recent evaluation showed that despite the fact that there is a lot of enthusiasm around it, if we continue in this way, we will not achieve the goals that we need to achieve in 2030. I'm convinced that if we want to to increase the impact of the SDGs, it is mostly going to come from better leveraging private investment. Thinking that additional public investment is going to play an important role in the next years, honestly, I do not see it coming. Despite low interest rates and so on and so on, it is the private sector that is going to play an important role. Playing an important role because it makes business sense. And I think that really is the key element that we should emphasize you can do investments that make business sense and that also make sense from a development perspective. And one example that I, uh, that I like to give is, 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 for example, what you see around um, about the mobile economy and the smartphone economy that you see developing in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, you have today almost a billion smartphones in Africa. How come you have a billion smartphones in Africa? It's because it's a business opportunity. If it were charity, and I'm not against charity, but if it were charity, you would have 10 million smartphones in Africa. But you have a billion because there is an economic opportunity, and because you understand that people are willing to pay, even if they are in a difficult circumstance, they're willing to pay for something that creates value, uh, value for them. This is just one example of emphasizing the role that the private sector can play in accelerating uh, development and and it's a point that i have to make often especially in political discussions is that profit is not a bad thing profit actually is a good thing by the way if you believe in sustainability there is nothing which is sustainable if you don't make a profit at some point because making a profit enables you to invest, enables you to grow your business, enables you to to innovate. So the fact that you are incorporating profit into development, in my view, is not a wrong thing. It's actually a good thing. Now, I am not here advocating for monopoly profits. I'm not advocating here for all kind of uh, taxation structures that are leading to capital not being taxed and so on that is for me a different topic but making a reasonable profit is actually a good uh, a good thing and we all know that in the development finance world that is a delicate balance because we know that the public role that we play in that is a role of leveraging often leveraging uh, private capital also structuring uh, certain opportunities. And we have to be careful there, because if we do this from the public side in a too aggressive way, we will be taking away the classic components of risks that you actually need to structure it in the right way. If we don't do it enough, then opportunities are not going to be developed. And that's a a delicate thing that we have to do to make sure that you don't get the typical crowding crowding out um, symptoms that uh, that we all know. Maybe touching for a few minutes on the uh, the report that you you mentioned, so I understand this is going to be the most important report of the year, that's um, that's quite good. Um, That report was uh, was discussed at um, the ECOFIN meeting in Luxembourg last week, so this is the meeting of all um, all finance finance ministers. Um, First of all, I think that um, this is a very timely report. We needed to have this, uh, this report, and I applaud the quality work that has been made in that, in that report. One of the conclusions is that on the European side, we are too fragmented, and I agree with that. All countries have their own uh, DFIs, we then have multilateral organizations. If you really think that we should maximize our impact, we should be working together in a much more synchronised uh, synchronized way. That's the first conclusion I definitely agree with. second element is um, these investments need to have a better way of measuring the impact, the societal impact. The financial impact is quite easy to measure. The societal impact is actually not really standardised for the moment. And I think that doing an effort in standardising that is going to be an important effort and i hope that on both sides of the atlantic we would work together on that and use the same the same uh, the same standards in that report there is of course also some options being put forward on how should we structure this how should we organize this on the european uh, continent as always there is one option going in one direction one going in the other direction then there's a third option which is basically in the uh, in the middle i think that the perspective that we should use in deciding what is the right structure of having more, uh, more coordination between European, uh, European DFIs is to understand, as Europeans, which role we play in the world. And if you look at the main dimensions where one can play a role in the world, I think in Europe, we're second to none. If you look at ODA, 60% of worldwide ODA is coming from the European continent, from the member states, and from what the European Commission is doing. If you look at investments in fighting climate change, we are by far the number one investor in fighting climate change. And we are a trade powerhouse. We are the biggest trading block in the world. And especially if you look at, for example, um, Sub-Saharan Africa, we are the most important uh, trading block. And on a diplomatic side, we're investing a lot. We could obviously do it in a more coordinated way. It's only in the fifth dimension, which would be defense, where indeed we are not the number one defense spender, correct? And there is, on the NATO side, a demand to increase spending, and I agree with that that amount. But we are, on all the other dimensions, by far number one in the world. But it is time, I think, on the European side to understand that all those investments would have way more impact if we also view this in a more political or more ideological way. The investments we do are investments which I think we should not be afraid of to put a certain political weight to that. You want to trade with with Europe? Of course you can, but we will not accept child labor. We will not accept investments that are not respecting our standards from sustainability point of view, for example. You want us to invest in local private sector? OK, that's good. But then maybe in an economy which is gender which is gender neutral. So the investments we do, I think that today, we're not leveraging this enough from a political perspective. And then in the choices that we need to make on what is the right structure of organizing this, this has implications. If you think that it is something where we need to use more political leverage then i think that it is quite clear that one structure is more up to that than another structure is up to that now am i here saying that dfis should not be looking at financial returns should not be looking at societal returns that should only be looking at a political lens no that's not what i'm saying i'm saying but i think that that political or ideological lens is really uh, really important one uh, so this visa report is going to be an important one now we all know um, reports we make a lot of them. Reports are useful when you put them in practice. And then I welcome an event like, uh, like, this, uh, like this tonight, where we can be- debate this more in detail and try to understand what our different perspectives are on that. But the key point of such a report is, of course, putting it, uh, putting it in practice. And if we can do that in a coordinated way on both sides of the Atlantic, I think that would be a good thing. So thank you again. For organising this event, really at a very timely uh, timely moment, and I'm looking forward to the discussion that we should have in the uh, minutes to come. Thank you.
0: Minister, stay up here, and uh, wait, Katerina, come on up. So, I'm so pleased, Katerina Maternova, who's the deputy director general, of the European Commission, uh, is also going to join us as well. Also a fellow alum of the World Bank Group. Yes. Um, so. Let's start, let me start with my favorite topic. So, so, Minister, this was, um, this issue of <clears throat> the role of DFIs in, in generating jobs <clears throat> I think is a really important question. I think you put a lot of interesting things on the table in your remarks. Let me just do, uh, how many of the EDFI members were early investors in Celtel or Gramine Phone? So DEG, D- D- fmo michael barth you were the former head of fmo you guys were you guys an early investor right so before it was cool people laughed and said cell phones in africa that's crazy so i'm sure when you when your investment officers put forward at deg or fmo who else who else was an early investor ifc cdc okay so cdc ifc fmo deg and alphabet soup of DFI's, <laughs> investment officer had to go and argue before it was cool. Now, this is, this is kind of conventional wisdom today, but in the mid-90s, 1993, 1995, 1998, 2000, 2002, this was, this was controversial, right? I'm gonna give cell phones to rich people in Africa. Turned out poor people wanted cell phones. And Mo Ibrahim, who was visionary, Understood that. So, if you, you're talking about cell phones, so you're absolutely right, Minister. You want to have cell phones in Africa? Microfinance, banking, right? I'm not going to go, there's a whole universe of these microfinance institutions. They used to be funded by grants. They're funded by investments today. That's the, again, the DFI sector, the EDFI members primarily, IFC as well. Others, critical. So, big changes we talk a lot in the development business about sustainability and scale so the ministers right you need profit to have sustainability and scale okay so thanks a lot so minister um, just I wanna I wanna talk about what is the role of government so you've been a development minister you are now the finance minister you're the you're the deputy prime minister <clears throat> what is the role of governments certainly DFIs have a role but what are, what are the other ways that governments help mobilize private
1: investments? Okay, um, in on on the development side. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. So so obviously in, in our case we are the hundred percent shareholder shareholder of our DFI and what we expect from them is to do a combination of investing in local uh, yeah, yeah. local private sector as we know also leverage private yeah. uh, private finance that's that's one uh, one element another element of course is that in the other development investments that we do be it healthcare be it education what we can do is always take a lens of creating local entrepreneurship creating a middle class uh, creating the transition from informal jobs to formal jobs Um, investing in capacity building domestic resource mobilization and so on so (coughs) a lot of the things because often for example in my country i've been criticized because the opposition would say well but you are privatizing completely uh, the development work and you're outsourcing completely all your development work to the private sector that's not the case i mean the budgets we used to have public oda budgets they kind of remain the same What has changed is that the lens we use in where are we going to invest, that lens has changed. And in that lens, we take a perspective of how do you create as much as possible economic growth in an inclusive way. And that element of doing it in an inclusive way is an important one because it does not go by itself. If you don't steer that in a certain way, we all know that you could get development with an incredible degree of, uh, of inequality. So that is work that governments need to do. I believe in the private sector. Yes. But I believe that we need to give a certain direction, create a certain framework. Rules of the game. Which, yeah, exactly. So, so if, you, if you don't create rules of the game, you're not going to get the societal impacts that you actually, uh, actually want.
0: Great. Thank you so much. Katerina Matronova, thanks for being here. You're a Deputy you Director General in the European Commission. Um, you're an alum of the World Bank Group. You served in government in the Slovak government? Czechoslovak government? Slovak, oh, Go- Slovak government. Okay,
1: you're a lawyer. I you know, it used to
0: be one country, but it's I know, two. I know, <laughs> I was
2: trying to figure.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. So, um, so, so, Katerina, you're one of the innovators in the European Union. You have, we were on a panel together in the spring meetings at the mm-hmm. World Bank. The European Union, uh, your, your ministry, if I can call it that, and DEVCO, which is the other ministry I know better, and we call them ministries, we call them directorates? Director General. Okay, director generalists. okay. Okay, ministries, are really critical to the DFI conversation and really critical to um, having a partnership with the DFIs, not just not FMO, EBRD, IFC, all are knocking on your door. Talk a little bit about the role, the, the, the engagement that you have with DFIs, because you guys play a critical role.
3: Okay. Well, first, thanks a million for inviting me. Sure. And it's an honor to be here in a city I love, where I spent m- m- over a decade yes. of, uh, of my life. Um, and uh, and it's an honor, Minister, to not only to be with you on the panel because you're a minister, but because you're a notable feminist. True. And, uh, <laughs> And so it's he
2: just—he published and a book. I he wrote yeah, a book yeah, on it.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, which—what's it called? What's it called? If you want. What's it called? <laughs> <laughs> just do a little plug. It's a, so a little commercial. Uh, right, commercial. right. Buy retail. Book, the book—the <laughs> book is called *The Age of Women*, um, but the subtitle is more important. The subtitle says, "Why Feminism Is Liberating Men." It's great. Uh, and so it's basically feminism <laughs> for men. Very good. Thank you. And so, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and I'm going
3: to uh, indeed indeed uh, order it, and I'll look you up in Brussels so you can sign it. for okay. me. We should have had copies, and, and uh, you could have
0: signed it outside <laughs> at the reception. But next time.
3: <laughs> and and so I um, let me just say uh, three points, also reflecting your question and also the minister's uh, thoughtful uh, introductory remarks. One on the private sector. I think that very much, if we want to go from billions to trillions, we need to bring in the private sector. And I think we need to work with people in this room and in an in a open and inclusive way with the, with the institutions. But I would like to say that the private sector is not the panacea only. It's extremely important, and I think that moving from grants into more innovative investments has really already made a difference and it will continue making a difference, but there will always be room for the grand world, for the school in Mali, for the, for the type of uh, support that is really difficult to imagine would attract mm-hmm. a, a, a lot of uh, private investment. So I just want to uh, say that there is going to be that scope uh, as well. Uh, but uh, we need to do a lot more in being able to harness the private sector and I think some have done more than than others and it's actually very exciting for us to to uh, learn about the world of the ed fees and I think there is a lot of scope to work more together uh, I have been part of I think one of the largest innovation, public innovations that has been done over the last, uh, over the last uh, I don't know, perhaps a decade, mm. and that was the external investment plan mm. that uh, we designed, which is, the, the idea of it is very simple. It's based on three pillars. One pillar is the financing, where we brought a new kid on the block, which is the European Fund for Sustainable Development. A mouthful is basically uh, an unconditional guarantee to de-risk the private sector investment. So that's the, that's the new type of financing that, uh, that, uh, well, I said, well, we designed it, we are negotiating it, uh, hopefully soon we will be uh, implementing it. And that sits along with the more traditional blending that we have done, which is combining our grant resources with, uh, with uh, DFIs uh, uh, lending. But in addition to this financing pillar, what is really critical from my point of view is, is the second and third pillar, which is technical assistance to develop bankable projects, because there is a worldwide paucity of bankable projects. We are all, you know, maybe not in Egypt, maybe not in Ukraine, but in, uh, in, in harder contexts, I think that everybody chasing behind the same projects. And, and then finding ways how to undercut each other, et cetera. So I think that the technical assistance to develop markets and to develop bankable projects is an important element. And the third pillar is the investment climate, but also the broader policy environment in the countries and the technical assistance also serving that. And because uh, it's really the, the, the good policies that can, that can create markets and that can create sustainability, uh, etc. And this, partic- this pillar is particularly important for us because what we try to do in, uh, in uh, DG Neighborhood and Enlargement where I work in, we really look at leverage, not only through the financial angle, that getting more financing into development, but also policy leverage. And this is what we have invested a tremendous amount of energy and time over the last four years, is to develop connections with our IFI partners and actually jointly press on governments. For example, my commissioner has uh, led uh, missions, I have led missions of (coughs) IFIs together. One was in Tunisia, one was in Jordan, in in Georgia, in uh, Serbia, in Ukraine, where we actually showed up. A lot of us, a busload of us mm-hmm. in ministers' offices, and it makes a much bigger impact uh, than, than if one institution, even as, as big as ours, uh, speaks by, by itself. So that's the point on the private sector and on the innovation. And the third point I wanted to make um, at the outset, and the, the minister alluded to uh, spoke about that, we have the new team, in Europe coming in, uh, President von der Leyen and uh, her team, and she declared that she wants to have a geopolitical commission. And I think it's very relevant also in the world of development finance because we are the (coughs) biggest payer, but we are not the biggest player. And part of the reason why we are not the biggest player is the fragmentation, uh, and I would even say in Europe the, the the addiction to subsidies that we have inside Europe and it also uh, gets, uh, gets translated uh, outside Europe often. And I think that it's really important for us to find a way how to have a bigger footprint. We have a big footprint but have big impact together, which is both about visibility and I think, and in this town, uh, not to be ashamed to say that we need to be very clear about European interest. Mm-hmm. And we have always been the, you know, just the, the, the good ones in the world that pay 60% of ODA and without saying this is in our interest or this is not in our interest. So I think it's now the time to really, uh, without uh, uh, being ashamed to say that, and what we have now, uh, put on the table. We, we program in seven-year increments. Uh, so the next financial framework is starting in 2020, Inshallah, and uh, uh, we have put <laughs> an instrument on the table that builds on this uh, uh, European Fund for Sustainable Development. We added the plus to it, and and that one. And we are won- one of the
0: contributors to it, right? The European Fund is for Sustainable yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And
3: we want to build it on an open architecture which uh, not, not, every, not every part of Europe is excited about open architecture, but we strongly, mm-hmm. strongly believe in that. And uh, we very much hope that uh, the Ed fees will mm-hmm. will continue and be stronger participants uh, in that. I know that working with European money is extremely complicated.
0: Yes, and I've had in- no success, so can we, can we work on that? And, uh, <laughs> it's really
3: <laughs> complicated. It's very complicated and we make it uh, complicated, uh, you know, every year even more, but, uh, but uh, there is really an opportunity to to uh, work together and I'm really honored to be able to be here, invited by the ATVs.
0: So, so Katerina, I just want to agree. I, I think I, I chair the outside advisory board for the U.S. government on, on official development assistance. is called ACFA. I think it's really important your point about Yes, we ought to be, billions to trillions agenda includes the private sector, and and Minister, you also said this, but we're still gonna need ODA. We're gonna need ODA, whether it's uh, helping governments collect taxes, whether it's uh, uh, democracy promotion, human rights, and better governance. Um, My view is, you wanna have a successful society, you have to have a a functioning, formal private sector, and you have to have a functioning, quality governance. Doesn't mean a huge state, but a functioning state, a quality state. Judicial reform. Most infrastructure is still financed by the, pub, the public sector in taxes. It's not public-private partnerships. <clears throat> police. If you want to police on the streets, you know that treat people right. I'm all for at women's economic empowerment, but if you kind of double-click on that topic, a lot of those issues have to do with rule of law. Have to do. It, it's not about just providing a guarantee to a bank or technical assistance. It's a whole other set of issues you both have been talking about. Uh, Countries, as they move up the curve, care about science, technology, and innovation. That's ODA. Uh, Basic education, a lot of it's ODA. Okay. So, uh, But what is interesting is the conversation that we we would have had 20 years ago is all ODA all the time. What fascinates me is I was with high-level French uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs folks yesterday, and they were talking about something called TUSD. Who knows what TUSD is? Hands, if you know what TUSD is. Okay, prize for (laughs) TUSD. OOF. Who knows what OOF is? Come on, you're in the DFI world. Oof. Okay, so we've now migrated to oof and tusd. So you're seeing kind of like how do we track all this stuff? How do we link it to things like the French wanted to say? Well, we want the Americans to sign on to, you know, tracking ODA to the Paris Accords. I know this is that's a popular idea in this audience. I'm not sure I'm going to sell that to my Washington colleagues, but I would just say that these issues are real. So. Katarina, can I just take advantage since so we're having this... what
3: is a, and
0: Oof? and OOF have to do with development finance and sort of... The, what's, I mean, it, it's measurement. Okay. It's like ODA has been the, the measure for 60 years or 50 years. They're adding new forms of measurement that the DAC, which is the FIFA, yeah. the FIFA of de- global development... <laughs> <laughs> right? This is a European audience, that's, right? The that, Major that's League really Baseball... Sorry. The NFL, the NFL of, 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 of global development. <laughs> and they kind of say what's in and what's out. So the French were like, well, we want to add some things. And I said, well, are you going to like stop counting Alliance Francaise French lessons as ODA? And they didn't think that was funny. I, I thought it was funny. But so <laughs> anyway, so, so Katarina, can I, can I take advantage? So, so this is sort of the more political panel. I know we're going to have a technical panel. So I'm going to take advantage of the fact that you guys are more senior and pro- opinionated like myself. So, so Katarina, what did you think of the wise person's report? Hmm. And do you think it's as important as I think? Is I think it's quite consequential.
3: I think it's uh, I think it's uh, an important endeavor. I think it's an important report. I certainly hardly uh, recommend to anybody who hasn't read it to read it. I think the analysis is excellent. I found it. Uh, surprisingly, surprising disconnect between the, the three options and the rest of the report. Yeah. I don't think they really, I don't think it's one report. I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't think one follows from the recommendations. But the analysis is uh, uh, very good, very thorough, with one big autistic white spot for me, which is...
0: Autistic, not artistic, right? Autistic, mm-hmm. autistic, autistic.
3: <clears throat> which is the world that, that I work on because we cover what we call neighborhood and enlargement countries. Mm. So we go from Syria to Morocco, right? So Maghreb, Mashrek, I mean, Mashrek, Maghreb, uh, and then Eastern Europe, Ukraine, Belarus, Moldova, three Caucasus republics, Turkey, and the Western Balkans. Mm. And in this world, which is uh, innately political for Europe and, and important, we have policies and they are not, primarily the SDGs and, and the Addis Accord etc. We have the neighborhood policy and we have the enlargement policy mm. and those words did not appear in that report. So that was a surprising omission. Um, uh, although when analyzing the European Commission, the DG neighborhood actually got high marks because in fact what I find particularly useful in the report are the short-term recommendations on which I think we need to act now. Mm-hmm. And I'm very happy to say, we analyzed it with colleagues, uh, that uh, somewhere between half and three quarters are things that in DG neighborhood, we have developed those and do that, including, for example, country platforms. Mm. We have uh, something called Western Balkans Investment Framework, which is exactly what we do. We have a, a range of essentially all IFIs active in the region, plus bilateral donors, including uh, Switzerland and Norway uh, mm-hmm. from, the, mm-hmm. from outside the EU, where we actually have a joint governance on looking at both policies and, uh, and investments and coordinating that. That's just one example. Okay. for, And I think that in, in critically important areas or countries for, for us, we need to do that more systematically.
0: Okay, yeah, great. Okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I didn't, I read it once. I'm gonna read it at least two more times because I think it's that. I, I write reports and I don't read my reports three times. I'm gonna read this report three times. I'm not sure I saw the word and I want you both to react to this word. I think the DFI world oftentimes kind kinds of reacts funny when you talk about politics or geopolitics. They don't wanna deal with it or they think it's fluffy because it's not business like or I'm not doing a transaction or it's not volume driven. So, I'm, but I want to come back, I think it matters. and I think your shareholders care about politics. They don't know what first loss is. They don't know what a capital stack is. Some of them do, most of them don't. Uh, but they know what China is. Mm-hmm. So I can tell you that the BUILD Act, we, it took us for 12 years, we've had one year authorizations of OPEC. The Trump administration, when it first came on board, was going to get rid of OPEC and get rid of the Exim Bank. I wrote an article in Forbes in early 2017 saying, don't get rid of OPEC, put it on steroids so Trump the rubber administration rightly made a 180 degree turn why did they make a 180 degree turn on Exxon Bank and have an excellent board chair my friend Kim Reid why do they have why have they put the OPIC on steroids and why did they get a Republican Democrat coalition like one word China now I'm not sure in the wise person report there was the word China or maybe it was kind of in kind of subtle nuance Euro-style way, maybe it was there. But I know, I know that that's an elephant in the room. So Minister, yeah. if I say the word China to
1: both of you, what's your reaction to that? <laughs> Indeed, China was not in the report, But then, for example, last week, the ECHOFEN discussion we had on it, there it was part of the discussion. I because, thought so. Because obviously, if you say this should be an instrument that is Part of a geopolitical uh, discussion in which we in which we are, then if you really want this instrument to be effective, mm-hmm. then I think you should have it in your own hands. Mm-hmm. And then out of the three options that were being put forward, then it is logical that if you take that perspective, and from my opinion, it's the right perspective, then you should go for a structure which is a pure European structure, um, and that is not. In the report, written, but it's not because it's not written that it is not an important. But element. it's there. But it's there. It's there, and I think in this room, everyone. I think everyone gets the, the consequences uh, of that.
0: Katerina, if I say the word China and in relation to this report and DFIs, what's your reaction to that?
3: Uh, well, in in the uh, region that that origins that uh, we cover, it's uh, something that's extremely. Relevant because uh, we know whether it's the Western Balkans, whether it's uh, the East, whether it's the Middle East, Central uh, Asia, Central Asia, which we don't cover, but Central Asia, very much. much, uh, China uh, uses uses its financial might and instruments to gain political foothold. I mean, there is no question about it. As well as as well as uh, uh use of resources and that's really that's really the biggest surprise uh, right now. Where we look at Africa? I mean, this has been going on for quite a while. I mean the Shanghai, the Shanghai consensus has been around for, for a long time and it's only, it's only gotten more more sophisticated. And the minister spoke about European standards and uh, safeguards, whether it's environmental, whether it's social, and and this is something where you you suddenly have not the same, not the same playing field, mm. and so we come with with good ideas and conditionality, etc. And mm. China comes with uh, with uh, with money. So I very much agree that we need to get our act together, and and overcome the. I like frag- the sound
0: of that. And overcome
3: <clears throat> the fragmentation that we have. And I think that short term, what we should do is actually. Uh, have much, much bigger visibility of what we already do and have a narrative and have a branding which the report also okay. talks about. What we have tried to do, it's not about China, but it's another player that, uh, that doesn't always play by. Which the, one is that? of rules, which is in Eastern Europe, which is oh. the, the big brother. Oh, yes. And it was, it, was the, it was the impact of Russia in the neighborhood that prompted us to actually do a common branding. It was not easy to sell it to our iFi colleagues, but uh, we had to break some arms, but uh, we now... I want you on my team, we now good. Brand, <laughs> we now brand our investments in the East as EU4. So EU4 Georgia, EU4 Armenia, EU4 Business, EU4 Environment, and we now actually got an agreement uh, with, with our partners that you know, they still will have their own yeah. logos, but, but the meta branding is the one EU4. Okay. I'm not saying this is uh, applicable to the whole world. It can be some other branding, but I think that this is something we really, we really need to do to, to actually be able to brand together what we already do. Now, the next step, would be an establishment of a new institution. I'm not sure you and I would have exactly the same view on. Uh, and don't what,
0: forget your friends, the Americans, may have a view on this too, right? Because we shareholder which in the EBRD. Of the right. would be
3: the best, but, right. uh, but uh, I think that we need to seriously consider that.
0: So I've got to, in the last three minutes, since again, since we have opinionated and high level political folks, let's try and make some news. So in the, next 12 months, in the next 12 months, four multilateral development banks are going to have a turnover in leadership. Uh, I can probably tell you what's going to happen with the African Development Bank, whether or not some shareholders would, would disagree or not with being renewing the current president. I can guarantee you the Japanese are going to be the next head of the Asian Development Bank. <laughs> Uh, I've got a view on the inter-american development bank rates, you can ask me in the reception about that, and I think, but but I think the one that's most consequential to this conversation is the EBRD presidency is coming up, and it's certainly relevant to the conversation about the wise person's work. The United States is the test, owns 10% of the shares, is the largest shareholder, the European Union plus all are you, you guys. Are
1: you, are you going to say you're a candidate, or?
0: No, I'm not, it goes to a European. <laughs> so knowing the European system, I'm worried because uh, the French got the ECB, the Germans got the big job at the EU. I'm, gar- I'm going to guess it's not going to be a Bulgarian who's going to be the next head of the EBRD given that uh, Kristalina got the IMF job. I'm worried given sort of the way the system works that there's, we, we use the term kind of, um, uh, you know, sort of like a uh, you, know, pri- you know, it's not a prize for the winners but it's a, what's the term, uh, you, know, uh, you, know, if you, you know, a consolation prize I'm worried EBRD is going to be used as a consolation prize, and given the report, I'm worried about who is picked and how it's picked. So, can you each give me your take on just just reflect on the EBRD race in particular? Have any views on that? (laughs) I'm going to nominate Chris. uh, I'm going to uh, my new friend, my neighbor here, Katarina, as a as a nominee. But. Thank you. Yeah, so we, I think we should we're gonna I, run your sh- I campaign. think we
3: should build this as the I'm running your campaign. For the campaign.
0: We're starting the campaign now. Yeah. But what so what do you think, Katerina? I'm worried about that this kind of just kind of going into a smoke-filled European <laughs> Union room and saying well, it's not the French, it's not the German. The French are going to probably put up a candidate. There'll be a contested race like in 2012. And so I think
3: how is that going to play out? Uh, coming from a small country uh, that joined the EU relatively recently I don't see any reason why it wouldn't go to the old tested big countries so that's a
0: very diplomatic answer I was hoping for a new Europe I was hoping for Eastern Europe or maybe a Dane
3: one thing I can say with a fairly high degree of certainty that is not gonna be Eastern Europe
0: it's not gonna be a Brit we probably I'm gonna assume it's not gonna be a the current the your, your UK holds it now, but I'm just thinking Am I being too cynical? Yeah, being maybe. Well
3: Well let's see. Okay. Maybe my campaign so that mean, we just I'm, started I'm, you and be I successful. are gonna I'm gonna set
0: up the website after the reception. All right. So Minister, what do you think? You're on you're a minister mm-hmm. of finance, so you're thinking about the inter you have a you're a shareholder of the Inter American Development Bank, mm-hmm. you're a shareholder of the EBRD. It's probably too late to, to get a francophone uh, uh, competitor to the yeah. anglophone current president of, of the african development bank but let's just focus on the ebrd so what do but you I,
1: I, look i think the the, the I, I know that obviously it's attractive to talk about who's going to be the person mm. but the real question is what's going to be the mission of the ebrd I, I agree think with that. that is that is the real discussion and let's not turn things around let's first have a discussion on what do we expect from the ebrd and that is not an easy discussion. Once you define that, okay. then we can see who's the right candidate. But let's not do it the other way around, because the other way around, yes, but then the picking of the mi- person is going to be a choice. the Minister, what I, EIB, I, I, EIB Minister is to I
0: buy do. all of that, but if I read the wise person's report, it says put on pause for the next 12 months what the EBRD should do and what the EIB should do while we figure out we're going to have a bunch of studies to figure this out. In the meantime, you have a vote before May yeah. because Suma leaves his job on May 1. So I'm buying all that, and that's a very excellent political answer. But <laughs> tell me, and I'm, I agree with that, but tell me... Uh, so, so, that, I'm not sh- so, so I'm fine with that. If you're telling me that the candidates have to have a vision for the EBRD, I'd buy that. Or, and that candidates have to have a vision. And the U.S.? Okay. I think Team America has to make a, also a statement about what its vision for the EBRD is my view is we still got a lot of unfinished business in Central Asia we got a lot of unfinished business in Ukraine we got a lot of unfinished business in the Balkans before we start kind of going doing mission creep my personal view is we probably want to finish the view and I would also say this publicly there is no way on God's green earth that the United States of America is going to sell its shares some people in this room have heard There have been loose talk and irresponsible talk and i know many of you know what i'm talking about we i'm going to be very very clear i don't care if it's a republican administration i don't care if it's a democratic administration we are not selling our shares so i think as you think (laughs) about options you need to be clear about
3: that may i very quickly comment on uh, not the shares but on uh, on the mission of ebrd and being from that part of the world and knowing the challenges i very much agree that uh, whatever happens with mission creep or not mission creep, the, the role, the transition role of EBRD is far from finished.
0: I love that. And I'm just going to record well, that.
3: We, we have Because we have one other transition that EBRD yeah. is well suited and needs to help the countries that it's operating in, and that's the carbon to carbon neutral uh, world transmission. That's something that you need to combine policies with investments. And they do that well. And by the way, they have expanded to MENA. They yeah. actually are, five years ago, there was no mandate for MENA. And now, last year, uh, um, Egypt was the largest country of operation. So, in our, in our geography, which is about close to 70% of EBRD's, uh, EBRD's portfolio, they are very, very uh, active. So I think that the concept of transition, which is evolving and now includes other issues, is far from finished.
1: Okay. Minister, you have the last word. I... Actually, I have to go. No, uh, is, <laughs> That's what, that works.
3: Great That's word.
0: great. <laughs> <laughs> That's a wrap. Please
1: thank the minister. <laughs> yeah, Thank you. No, actually, I thought this was a great discussion. I, I don't okay. have that much to add to it. I think that the, the discussion on who is it going to be that, that is, of course, I mean, that's a discussion that is an exciting discussion. And I and understand that what you want to push for, the discussion on what is the EBRD going to do, what is the EIB going to do, is the key discussion. And I don't agree that your reading of this report is that in the next 12 months we're not going to have a discussion on that that i don't agree on i think we cannot afford ourselves for the next 12 months not to talk on that.
0: i would just say that if the united states wants to insert itself into the search process of the ebrd we are going to have to have a very clear vision about what we want out of the ebrd so that we have a seat at the table um and so i expect and hope that team america both republicans and democrats will 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 do that and i'm going to push hard over the next two months to to get that done share that. please join me in thanking the panelists Good, Thank you. Thank,
4: Thank you. you. Thanks. All right. Thank you. Oops. All right. Here at CSIS, and we're going to switch a little bit gears. I'm not going to ask you about China or the Wise Persons Group. Uh, this panel is on investing uh, to create jobs, and so we're going to talk about the role of DFIs in in job creation and in more importantly in uh, measuring the the impact uh, and, and, and jobs so uh, we have a very distinguished panel thank you for coming uh, we have Liz Lloyd she's chief impact officer at CDC group uh, of the UK uh, we have also um, Chantal Korteweg she's director of stakeholders strategy and knowledge management of uh, FMO Netherlands welcome Um, To my left is uh, Sanjeev Gupta. He's Executive Director for Financial Services at the Africa Finance Corporation, AFC, right? Uh, We have IFC, DFC, and now we have AFC. Uh, Yep. And then um, we have our friend Paul Lamontagne. He's uh, Chief Executive Officer of FinDev Canada. Uh, Just recently launched last year, right? Um, so let me, let me start with um, Liz. I wanted to ask you about um, you know, CDC group uh, in general, in terms of your role as CIO, which is not the chief information officer, but chief um, impact officer. What, uh, what is your role, and what, what are uh, CDC's priorities?
5: So my my role is a relatively uh, newly created one of Chief Impact Officer. And uh, I think it's really about institutionalizing uh, development impact throughout the organization. So so my team uh, works intimately with each of the deal teams um, during due diligence, uh, during the assessment for for each transaction, uh, to look at what is the potential development impact and how we might be able to deepen that. Uh, and then uh, we look across the life cycle of every investment, we monitor how we're doing, uh, and eventually uh, we, we uh, evaluate what we've learned and feed that back into the strategy, uh, strategy development. So it's really about uh, making sure that there is always that development impact voice at every table.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: Uh, and, and that is really what we do. And CDC as a, as a group has been... Is a DFI, and we have been uh, for 70 years investing, investing and creating jobs. Uh, and I think what probably differentiates us from others is we are more equity focused, uh, and we invest in in some of the h- hardest to reach places. So in Africa and South Asia, uh, and in in particularly in in the poorest countries. So that is probably what differentiates differentiates us from many other DFIs.
4: Um, can you can you talk a little bit more about you have a tool called the development impact grid? Can you explain a little bit what that, that is uh, and
5: uh, how do you implement it? Yeah, so that is, uh, is a is a screening and a portfolio sort of allocation tool that we have been using for many years, and it helps prioritise towards uh, the, the hardest countries and the sectors which create the most jobs. And so we score every investment according to that uh, sort of uh, that that sort of that set of criteria, and it helps ensure that we are sort of we are, our portfolio is focused on uh, the hardest countries and the, the sectors mm-hmm. which create the most jobs. And you know why are we interested in jobs? I think one of the re- one of the reasons we're interested in jobs is if you if you ask people uh, if you use the Afrobarometer poll, uh, and which they they did. Uh, you know, and asked uh, those living in Africa, what is your uh, sort of SDG of most concern? It was decent jobs and economic growth. Uh, so I, I think there's a real resonance mm-hmm. there with you know what we're doing and listening to the voice of others. And I think my, my colleague Paddy Carter has, has written a report on you know wh- why jobs. Uh, yeah. So, there's, there's and we have there.
4: copies. Uh, this is another uh, marketing. Uh, <laughs> we have some copies uh, for for you on this uh, jobs report, if you if you want to take a, a look. And you know, it's interesting uh, about Africa. I was in Nigeria last year. We did a, a study on the future of work um, in developing countries, and um, one of the economists that we interviewed uh, told me, you know, it was a very striking phrase. He said that. A lack of jobs can make somebody more entrepreneurial or it can make a, a, a young person more aggressive. So
5: I think, you know... Well, that's that's a really interesting point because one of the, 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 the sort of uh, aspects which, which Patty's report kind of highlights is, it is it's absolutely about the kind of direct economic impact but there are also other kind of aspects, social, yep. sort of environmental things around sort of decent work, pride, uh, and other sort of um, social aspects which we can take into account. And I think, as a DFI, as was mentioned before, you know, our role is about decent work, it's about you know safe work, predictable work, and we can add a lot of value in our conversations with investees who are often really uh, delighted to have conversations about, uh, you know, how do we re- reduce attrition? You know, what what is a really good way of getting a better gender balance, and why why you might want to do that. So that's very much part of our. We see that very much as part of our role.
4: Um, Chantal, let me turn to you. Um, How do you, how does FMO, um, you know, take into account impact in their investments? And uh, can you explain a little bit what you know? How do you differentiate uh, with other European
6: DFIs? Yeah. So FMO is the Dutch Development Bank. We invest in over seventy-five emerging markets. Um, to empower entrepreneurs to build a better world. We focus on three sectors, agriculture, food and water, financial institutions and renewable energy. Um, We provide loans, uh, provide guarantees or take equity stakes. And uh, beyond the financing, we work a lot on capacity building. so I think what differentiates us is to, uh, we have really scaled up our business to catalyze third-party money mm. um, and to to catalyze and crowd in the private uh, investors for private sector investments. Another area we um, are focusing on more and more is being part of innovations and innovative solutions. So thinking about blended finance structures and entering into non-traditional partnerships with NGOs and all kinds of other partners to really complement each other and to uh, provide the solutions our clients are asking for.
4: Um, so, how do you see? Uh, what is like your vision for um, measuring development impact and harmonizing, you know, the measurement across, you know, the different, at least the European DFIs? Yeah, is, is
6: yeah. So thanks for that so i think um just to take a little bit of a historical context here and describe quickly the the evolution of this so 20 years ago i think all the the dfis kind of assumed their impact by being additional and going to places other commercial investors found too risky Um, 15 years ago that wasn't enough anymore and we all started to focus on environmental and social best practices Mm -hmm. and trying to mitigate risks from an ESG, so Environmental, Social and Governance, perspective. Uh, We still do that, but uh, nowadays we are all looking at how to track our positive impact. So you can look at different levels for that, so on a deal level, thinking about the number of female entrepreneurs, for instance you are uh, reaching, or the, the number of smallholder farmers, Um, thinking on a portfolio level where ex ante, so before we enter into these investments we estimate if they will qualify as uh, uh, contributing to to climate action, so SDG 13 or to contribute to reducing any inequalities and of course on a sector level where um, after a couple of years we would do evaluations to look at our investments across the sector and to see what the development impact has been. So I think this is a really interesting time where we we all see the business case as the minister also uh, explained to us why we need to <coughs> undertake a harmonised effort to do this. So indeed to, to explain our story better, where is our money exactly going and why is that meaningful uh, to the people on the ground. But also um, aligning methodology will allow us to collaborate much more efficiently and effectively. Thirdly, um, it will increase efficiency for our clients. So many of our clients have multiple uh, DFIs investing in them and we all have different reporting requirements Mm -hmm. and that's just super burdensome for clients like AFC. Um, So aligning and harmonizing on definitions, methodology, How we report on that is is in the interest of everyone, and especially (coughs) our clients. And then lastly, I think the reason we want to do this is to inform our investment decisions. So if we know, if we measure what we're doing and if we can um, uh, correctly explain uh, our development impact, we will get better at finding the right investments um, and demonstrating uh, the effect. So, so, from an uh, EDFI uh, perspective, we've set up a task force mm. um, half a year ago and we are taking a really systematic approach in terms of aligning and harmonizing SDG per SDG. So starting with uh, jobs, so SDG 8, Decent Work and Economic Growth, to, um, to define what is a job actually, thinking about direct jobs and indirect <coughs> jobs. And to, to earlier this week we published a standard on that to um, align on on definitions but also on reporting and templates. So we are asking for feedback and input on that. And on the indirect job side we have developed a model um, which is an input-output model uh, and where we take induced effects into account. um, And we would, uh, we want this to be open access and we want to, to work with what is, what is there, what exists, so indicator bases like uh, HIPSO and Iris Plus are things we are working with um, and we are keen to expand this initiative um, globally and, uh, wi- and invite other institutions and organizations to join efforts, um, the IFC, the African Development mm-hmm. Bank, but also pension funds or commercial investors to, to make this uh, yeah, a global effort I guess with the, with the dream, or with when, you say, when you start with the end in mind, thinking about international impact reporting standards at some point in time and working to de- together to, to get there.
5: So, CDC would um, subscribe to the same. So, we're working extremely closely with FMO on this particular working group. And, uh, you know, I think to, to echo one, one of the points. Um, if you if you understand your workforce well, if you understand what direct jobs you're creating, you can start, uh, you know, you can start looking at things like gender splits. You can start looking at attrition data. You have much better information about your business. So I think uh, having one one standard that is useful for the business and useful for reporting is really really the common goal. And these are formal jobs that you're measuring. These are, well, there's, there's a couple, there's direct jobs and indirect jobs that we're working at through this.
4: Okay, I, I wanted to turn a little bit about, you know, the conversation to Africa and, you know, and, and talk a little bit out about AFC's priorities and uh, your portfolio of deals. Can you explain a little bit to the audience what, what AFC does and what are your uh, priorities?
7: Yeah, sure, uh, and good evening, everybody. Uh, when I was actually invited uh, to come and speak, uh, and I saw the the guest list and the list of panelists, I was a little worried because uh, it looked like I was the only African institution <laughs> sitting here. Uh, and, and while it was very easy for me to feel very privileged and honored, uh, a kind of a dark thought came that am I going to be the whipping boy here? Right. And, because uh, if one looks at the DFI world today and if one looks at the the problems that, that we are all trying to grapple with, I think, uh, unfortunately, uh, narrative aside, uh, on a disproportionate basis, uh, Africa seems to feature for all the wrong uh, uh, reasons. right? Mm-hmm. And, and that in itself means that a lot more dialogue needs to be had around Africa. So I'll try my best as one individual representing 1.2 billion people to, to try and s- explain <laughs> what we do. Um, but in many ways what we do in Africa Finance Corporation and in fact I was in a meeting this morning and, and it struck me that Roughly 90% of people that I met didn't know what AFC was. Well, so, and then
4: you also, you, you have IFC, and now you have the DFC, which is the new OPEC. So, yeah. um, so we all
7: believe in the use. three-letter word in this industry, <laughs> right? So,
2: um,
7: but, but it struck me because, you know, when it comes to the continent generally, uh, there is always this thing about the continent being shrouded in mystery and, and secret. And I think we epitomize that, that, that. We're doing some good work, but nobody seems to know about us which is probably our failing as well. So who are we? Uh, We are a multilateral uh, financial institution. Mm -hmm. Uh, We were actually set up by African governments with African money, based in Africa, resourced with Africans, to invest in Africa. It's a pretty unique combination, Mm -hmm. 12 years back. 12 years down the line, where are we? Uh, We have successfully deployed I think close to $6 billion across 30 countries in Africa. In perhaps some of the most difficult sectors, uh, being power, roads, boats, logistics, um, natural resources, bits of coal as well, um, <laughs> telecoms, blah, blah. And I think as we speak today, one can safely say this, and it's important to say this, that. We are a living example of a successful public-private partnership because we were funded by African government money and subsequently supported initially by the European DFI community. Mm -hmm. And then we went to the global capital markets ourselves and raised money globally. Today we are rated A3, which makes us the second best credit-rated institution (laughs) in the continent. So fundraising seems to be a lesser challenge for us. Deploying it seems to be the bigger one, which in itself is such a contradiction in terms. When you see the opportunity that is out there, uh, you kind of say, what's six billion? And how can you say deploying is a challenge?
4: Well, the previous panel, sorry to interrupt, talked about bankable projects.
7: Which is where I, I actually was going to say three things that came out of the previous panel. Exactly that, that bankable projects is the biggest challenge and also the biggest opportunity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we've done, and actually, FMO and us have done it very well, is we have set up a dedicated project development facility, which takes early stage project development risk so that projects can see the light of day. And the way we position ourselves is to say that policy is easy. In fact, the minister said, reports are easy. It needs (laughs) to be acted upon. We believe that our biggest role is, how do we translate policy into projects? And that's not going to happen if you don't do that PD space. The second thing the minister said which struck me was that multilateral institutions, DFIs, should not run away from the objective of making money. And again, we are a living example. We've been profitable. We never had to go back to our shareholders in the last 12 years. Uh, And on the back of that, we managed to sustain ourselves. So overall, I think the story that one needs to accept and understand when us as a player in the African continent is, 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 is concerned about is that one has to engage, one has to spend time developing it, but most importantly, and we have this little, little uh, filter in our investment committee where we say that everything that can go wrong will go wrong. So what are we going to do when it goes wrong? Mm. And we apply all our projects to that test, and maybe that's why we've been... <coughs> reasonably successful
4: so Sanjeev how do you balance um, you know this issue of profitability with impact and job creation how, you know how do you um, balance those objectives is it yeah
7: so you know, one so we've been probably been fortunate or or conveniently naive uh, it depends on, on which side of the table you want to come from but because we were a PPP and our largest shareholder base was the private sector From day one, our conversation tone at the board level, at the strategy level, was to be commercially viable. So I can tell you, however harsh it may sound, that we have always kept commercial returns on our investments as our top priority. Mm -hmm. And we believe that works. Why it works? Is because if you are going to have, at a management level, at a strategic level, that objective that people who give you money must have an appropriate return, it percolates down to how you look at projects, how you manage risks on projects, and how you make sure that investors who come into those projects actually do what is commercially viable for that project to succeed. So to answer your question, we think that if you look at projects from a commercially viable point of view, everything else follows. It's what we call the virtuous cycle. So even job creation, to us, and I'm probably stating the obvious, is is not an end in itself. It is a culmination of everything else you do right. If you're not going to develop projects which are in the core sectors, you're not going to create manufacturing. You're not going to create entrepreneurship. You're not going to have trade. So if you're not going to have all that, how are you going to create jobs? So, we see our mission as pretty straightforward stuff, build the core part of Africa, which is around power, which is about roads, which is about logistics, which is about ports, which is about telecoms, so that entrepreneurs can flourish, trade can flourish, and industry can be created, and jobs will happen.
4: Okay, we'll get we'll go back to the issue of jobs um, a little bit later, but I wanted to uh, you know um, invite Paul uh, you're the new kids on the block and uh, you were just launched last year I wanted to get a sense of what are the new the, the new deals that you're doing and how do you see your uh, priorities is our jobs uh, job creation a, a big priority for FinDev Canada uh, if you could speak about you know the, those things
8: yeah thanks Ramina. thanks to you and Dan for having me back and EDFI as well, uh, being the, on a panel of Europeans and Africans. Proverbial um, new kid on the block, it's been interesting since we started at WeWork 18 months ago. There's been a, a real interest in what it's like to build a, a new DFI from, from scratch. Um, and uh, Dan, thanks for all the good work you've done with others uh, to launch the new USDFC. So it's Adam now is the new kid on the block. Yeah. And, and, and as a result, I was glad, Dan, that a FinDev Canada CEO job wasn't included on your list of potential vacancies. Uh, I'm, I'm, here I for, stay I'm here for a while. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so it's an interesting story that mm-hmm. um, there hasn't been a new DFI for a long time. I think our colleagues from Austria were the last DFI that was launched about 10 years ago. Um, so the government decided it was time to for Canada to have a, a DFI or Deputy Minister, uh, Chris McClellan is actually here uh, leading the Canadian delegation. Uh, Chris, welcome. Uh, so when Chris and the government look at the toolkit around development, uh, they now can count on a, a DFI uh, and FinDev Canada to to be that sort of window to the private sector and the natural partner when we talk about mobilization, in, in addition to um, all the other good work and ODA and innovative finance that, uh, that's now out there. And probably our greatest strength, uh, and it's not to be underestimated, is we're new. So we had nothing when we started in WeWork. A few of my colleagues are here, and you'll remember, maybe smiling, maybe not, of our first few months in a, in a WeWork rented uh, boardroom where if you had a call, you had to, you know, everybody knows WeWork, you had to go out um, in, in the main area. <laughs> so we relied heavily on so many people in the room. Hmm. Uh, and frankly, uh, you know, this community, and I think e- e- the EDFI community and, and others a little larger, were so welcoming to want to share your stories and these types of best practices. So I won't minimize it. Huh? Bruno, it's not paint by numbers running a DFI. Um, but it made our job so much easier. And shame on us if we didn't, li- if we didn't ask. And we didn't listen to so I'm you know I think our success uh, to a great extent is uh, is because of many people in the room and as a result we said well let's build something that's not for today but for the future so I talk we talk a lot about building the DFI for the future and I think a DFI for the future is far more about impact uh, than it probably ever oh, wow. was you know the comment was impact and was always part of it, hmm. but, you know, we led with it's good enough to be bringing uh, capital and investment hmm. to, to markets and that clearly will have a profound uh, development impact. Now we're a lot more strategic hmm. about it. We're, we're thinking about it. So, um, if, I, if I was in the movie business, and I, I do dabble a little bit in writing this and that. Um, I would call this movie, which we won't talk about today then, I'd call it um, Impact Fund Meets DFI, Impact Fund Meets DFI, and in the meeting we had a little bit earlier today, um, it sounded like there's a bit of a love story now between impact funds and impact and DFIs, but this isn't a love story, I think it's a drama, it's a drama because (laughs) we can't fail, well, you have Not to change because, the name. Because you going to have well, to change the name. So um, you know, building a new DFI for the future has a lot of advantages being a DFI construct and a lot of disadvantages, and, and, and folks in the room will know this. So great advantages is when I was hired, I was given a $300 million check, and that's great. I've never, you know, I've been an impact investor in raising money all my life. Nobody's ever given me that much money. Uh, but it comes with that huge responsibility hmm. because, uh, you know, although we want to be entrepreneurial, we, we need to clearly define the sandbox that we're in. Um, so dealing with things like reputational risk and shareholder relations and ESG and compliance and ethics and all the things that requires, that we're required to have in place to actually, you know, build, build this uh, DFI for the future um, properly. The the last thing about being new that that I'll say is timing is everything. Mm. So it's great to have been born into a world where we're trying to align everything we do along around one one or more of the 17 SDGs. Mm. So um, my kids always laugh because in the morning I get dressed, put on my tie, and I don't leave the house without my SDG pin, and everybody now recognizes me. And if you haven't worn the SDG pin, I promise you it's a conversation starter everywhere. (laughs) Um, You know, it's so beautiful, is that your logo, what does it mean? And So it's worrisome that nobody knows what this pin is, but um, coming from a week at the UN, a couple weeks ago at uh, UNGA, I really am heartened that I think that there is a growing sense that there is an emergency. Uh, And we've got 10 years to address this emergency, uh, and if we don't do, then... Um, The consequences are dire. So, and I sort of perhaps end on this. So, we built uh, a development bank focused entirely on impact at the start. So, how did we do it? We spent almost a year consulting with the stakeholder community Mm -hmm. in Canada,
2: uh,
8: making sure that our ideas... Uh, were aligned with not only ideas of our uh, shareholder, but um, ideas of the stakeholder community. And before we dealt with building uh, an enterprise risk management framework and an investment strategy, we worked long and hard on building a development impact framework. uh, And a tool Hmm. on top of that, that would help guide our investment decision-making process. And probably where we are known, Ramina most is around the importance that we place on Women Economic Empowerment, SDG 5. So, we did four what we think are very important things to ground gender, and this is a a much better looking panel, Dan, from a gender standpoint. The last one was great, but just pointing that out. Four things. One is we set a strategy. Two, we had our board approve a policy that on our waterfall, Mm -hmm. is at the top, so all other policies need to align with our gender policy. Three, when we constituted the investment committee, we gave a voting seat to our colleague who's responsible for gender, and four, everything we look at, (coughs) we look at through a gender lens, Mm -hmm. and that's not always easy. Doesn't mean that all our investments um, can be defined as gender smart investments, but we look at all of them through that lens before we make uh, any investment decisions.
4: So One follow-up question, a very hard one. Um, did you read the minister's feminist book?
8: I, didn't, your... I didn't read the, the minister's feminist book, but I'm extremely envious um, that um, he uh, wrote a book on, on gender. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I have to say that I take, with great humility... A man leading a financial institution that uh, is trying to uh, have an impact, particularly on gender. Um, I will say half our board are women, a majority of our advisory council are women. And uh, I got a call uh, from a member of the stakeholder community in Canada at one point that said, You really have too many women on your advisory council. Why can't you find men? And I. Uh, so we. Um, we, I'm not sure if anybody uh, from OPIC is here. Uh, I got the greatest gift uh, when Catherine Kaufman showed up in Montreal and said, uh, we have this idea to take the uh, US uh, 2X initiative and, and take it international. Do you think that we could actually bring this to the G7? And the G7 was in June and this was in April. And I think the normal reaction would have been, you know, that, that's impossible. And thank goodness I perhaps don't come from government. I said, yeah, we're gonna do it, without knowing how we would do it. But three months later, we showed up in Chalabois, and we announced a $3 billion gender smart investment um, alliance of uh, eight partners from the G7 countries. We uh, said we're gonna have to standardize and harmonize and have a framework by which we can report and we set what we thought was a very bold target of mobilizing $3 billion for gender smart mm-hmm. investments. Uh, and you might have seen that um, since then, we announced a year later, we've reached $2.4 billion after one year. And many of the DFIs, heads that are in the room, have now joined this coalition. Mm-hmm. So we've gone from eight to 12, and tomorrow we have a our CEO luncheon, and we're going to announce, uh, I won't let the cat out of the bag right now, but yeah, two, two, two new uh, DFIs yeah. are going to join us as part of that alliance. And I think the biggest decision that this 2X Alliance, uh, 2X Challenge Financing for Women Alliance, is going to be, what's our next target? Mm. And and uh, sort of message to those okay. that are coming to the CEO lunch tomorrow, that's the single biggest decision I think we need to make and decide how how high, you know, what quantum we want a- and what time frame we're prepared to commit ourselves to. So very excited and I think more than anything else I think that that has p- contributed to putting FinDev Canada on the map and uh, proud to say that the uh, 2X Challenge Finance aid for Women selected uh, my colleague Anne Marie Levesque as the chair of the working group for the next year ahead. So it's exciting for us to be able to support her and our partners in this.
4: Thank you Paul. Um, we have- you know, ten minutes left. My last question, going back to the jobs challenge, and um, you know, particularly Africa, your work in, in that continent. I mean, how how are we going to solve the jobs challenge in Africa? I mean, we have 3.3 billion people uh, by 2030, which, which will be under the age of 25. They will need education. They will need uh, economic opportunities. Um, so, how do you how do you see your institution? working towards you know, providing meaningful economic opportunities for these you know, new generations. And then you can get a, once you answer the question, you can get a drink. <laughs> so I don't know who wants to start.
7: So, uh, If I may just kick off and make one particular comment. Um, as we uh, build what we build, or finance what we finance, which, as I said, is largely uh, infrastructure and power projects, uh, we realise that uh, one of the best ways to manage the inherent risk that lies in each project is to actually start looking at it from an ecosystem point of view. So, so increasingly what we find ourselves doing is if you are looking at a project around, say, a mine, we will want to build the logistics around it. We'll want to build a power station to be able to power the mine itself. And we will even, in certain cases, try and link it to the port and build the port and the jetty itself. Now, as you do that, we see a surprising impact that happens and kind of goes around the community. Uh, It's more than just feel good. It actually starts creating jobs. Mm -hmm. The other thing that we found, particularly in a place called Gabon, which, in fact, if any of you ever go to Gabon, go and have a look at it, is that we built what started off as a simple mineral processing zone. And then we realized that Gabon is known for its timber exports. 90% of Gabon is woodlands, and people cut trees Mm. and send it off with no real uh, scientific way of replanting and managing the process. So we funded alongside some private sector partners of ours a special economic zone that encourages wood that is cut in a responsible manner because we are actually managing that side of the value chain as well, bringing it to wood processing inside the special economic zone and then what is finally being exported is ten times the value per, per ton or per, per whatever that the Japanese government is earning as mm-hmm. revenues. And in that process itself, what have you created? You've created community involvement because you are now cropping wood in a responsible way. <laughs> You're using drone technology. We are doing drone, drone technology to replant. And then we are managing the whole logistics to bring it to the special economic zone and creating jobs there.
2: Mm.
7: So much so that today I think the government has declared that they, no unprocessed timber is allowed to be exposed. Mm-hmm. So, again, a simple infrastructure project designed to support a basic infrastructure need as we went down the value chain and started intervening started creating that entire virtuous cycle Mm -hmm. of jobs so that's that's how we see ourselves playing a role in what we call jobs being the ultimate result of Mm -hmm. what we do
4: laser
5: chantal do you have any views well i mean we we are committed and we have we have, uh, uh, fortunately, l- like you, we still have uh, a big cheque, uh, and w- we will continue to invest in Africa through all the routes that we have, uh, through, you know, equity, debt, through funds, and increasingly, we're looking at innovative ways of doing this. Uh, but I think, <coughs> in, in respect of knowing what we're doing we are much more thoughtful now about who we're affecting with our investments and how much and how durable that is. Mm -hmm. And I think that understanding and that learning is what will lead to, uh, from a DFI perspective, more intelligent investment decisions. And then the second thing I'd say is that it is... uh, You know, all all types of jobs. You know, entry-level jobs, jobs that are sort of barely, barely formalised, but at at a certain level. But also, sort of reskilling, reskilling for the new economy, reskilling towards clean energy, towards digital technologies. Um, So, we're looking at the whole spectrum, and, and fortunately, we have we have the ability across our portfolio to look look at very many of these dimensions.
8: So I, I would say just a couple of things. So one, our development impact framework clearly has a, um, a market development uh, a priority where we focus on uh, employment job, creation of jobs. You won't be surprised to hear that we focus on jobs for women. Um, you know, Mindful of the barriers that exist for women in the workforce and equities. Um, social norms mm-hmm. employment regulation um, uh, and legislation and we some of you may know I like to pull out these cards we invented a game to help uh, us better understand the challenges uh, around gender issues so it's called unequalopolis and it's best played when men play women and women play men and it really hits home so you know it happens ramina that's I looked in the deck and pulled one out and, of course, you know, here's a, a telling, pass-go and men collect $200 and women collect $100 in most countries <laughs> women face important pay gaps. Uh, the WEF found that the average, uh, woman, w- average of women across the world are paid 63% uh, of men. So we work with investees uh, and, and talk with them around uh, recruitment uh, and retention strategies uh, in particular for women. But lastly, we're very focused as a new DFI I'm trying to get our ticket size down and deal where we think the sweet spot is for the creation of jobs, which is the SME mm-hmm. space, of course. They're going to create the most amount of jobs. So with um, CDC, uh, Proparco, OPIC, and the MasterCard Foundation, we're just finishing uh, the biggest business plan competition for women in uh, Africa. Mm-hmm. We're running it in East Africa. It's called Invest Impact. Um, and it's looking to identify 100 uh, top potential uh, women uh, owners of uh, of businesses in East Africa, and we're gonna have the final event, very exciting, uh, at the end of uh, of November. So this is identifying a group of cohorts that we really can um, work with, either from a technical assistance, capacity building, or an investment standpoint, to really try to get their businesses in uh, one form or another, depending on the level of development Uh, and contribute to job creation as Mm
6: -hmm. well. Very briefly, I guess. Um, It's about time that investors see the opportunities to invest in Africa, I would say. And I'd like to reiterate the importance of this harmonization initiative. And if we do that step by step, for the reasons I I explained before, I'm sure we can create all these jobs uh, across Africa.
4: Thank you. Um, before uh, I give the floor to Dan and Bruno, um, there are uh, several reports we put out there. Sorry, Dan, but the wise person's report He's is not, not the I'm there. most important. <laughs> CSIS reports are the most important, so uh, please, uh, as one. you, yeah, that one. As you head out for the uh, reception, um, please grab a, a, a copy, and um, I please thank you for thank the <laughs> panelists.
9: Yet, starting with the reception uh, since uh, dan put uh, the wise person's report uh, on the focus of, uh, of, of this debate i think it's appropriate that you to let you know also the position of uh, the edfi so we welcome very much the report and as the minister mentioned and as you, the deputy general <coughs> mentioned we see the need to focus very much on the short-term measures. Because if we do not change the way in which the European Commission is steering and managing the European development System, it doesn't matter what kind of institutions we are creating. And managing a fragmented set up, this requires also a different set up within the Commission. And as the Deputy Director-General also mentioned that it's not so easy to get access to the European funds and to manage European funds, we welcome very much also the suggestion of the Vice-Persons Report to tackle this issue. Because uh, I would like to remind you that uh, in the same week that uh, when the Vice-Persons Report was published, Also, the uh, the European uh, uh, (coughs) Court of Auditors also published a report saying that in the tune of 290 billion Euros, euros, funds that have been approved by the European Commission are not being dispersed, and it's difficult for municipalities, for countries, and even institutions like us to call these funds. This is why we think there's a need, because it will increase the efficiency and we are working. And I think uh, and we believe very much it will also increase uh, the significance, uh, the relevance and um, um, the visibility of European development finance. But at the same time, we also believe very much that whenever the politician decides to come out with uh, some kind of institution set up, then we would like to see that the institution is complementary to what others are doing, not competing with others. And that they also agree on a pricing formula that is not undercutting the market, and I think this would be extremely helpful not only for Uh, for us, but for the whole industry. And the final thing uh, that we would like to see is that the European Commission, also the Minister alluded to that, uh, because they have a huge amount of grant funding, and this grant funding could be used very much for de-risking. Not de-risking what we are doing as DFIs, but de-risking our clients. The more the stakeholders, our owners, ask us to go to to the most risky places in the world. We have to find investors who are willing to put their capital at risk. And this is why de-risking these investments creates opportunities so that it will come in. So um, I think the lively debate has demonstrated that uh, Indeed, we as EDFI that we generate impact uh, uh, also by creating jobs and maximizing private investment. Indeed, uh, EDFI, we play a growing role, I would say a key role in development finance architecture because we are growing, we are targeted, we are diversified and we are very much connected only to give you some figures. So from uh, 2005 to uh, to 2018 our annual commitments grew from 2.6 billion to 8 billion, that is a rate of 9% per annum. And the combined EDFI portfolio grew even faster from 10.9 billion in 2005 to 31.3 billion in 2018. And 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 when I reflect once again, or refer once again, to the wise person's report, the three institutions that are mentioned there, the EDFI, EBRD, and ERB, account for roughly 18 billion of new commitments in 2018. And eight out of the 18 are coming from us. So it once again, underlines our Uh, Significance. And I would like also to mention another figure. 74% of what the European Union is financing in the private sector in Africa, in sub Saharan Africa, is financed by us. But having said that, we know that figures on commitments, portfolio, disbursement, is not enough anymore in light of the SDGs, its impact that counts. And this is why, as Chantal has already alluded to, we have embarked on a very ambitious and a very bold harmonization initiative where each year we decide what kind of reporting harmonization we would like uh, to take up uh, in terms of SDGs. This year, in 2019, we have focused on SDG 5, that's Gender Smart Investments, SDG 8, that's Direct Jobs, that SDG 10, that flows to group of um, countries in greatest need, and then the SDG 17, Mobilization of Private Co-Financing. And we have agreed upon on the standards and the way that we define uh, the definitions and uh, the reporting And uh, next year, we will report uh, on the figures. And uh, within the next days, we will then also decide uh, what we will like to do next, because that's very important. We embarked on a process. So every year, we will continue. And what we are doing within our small group of EDFI, that, as Chantal already alluded to, that's a contribution to the overall debate. Because also this morning, in the round table amongst uh, us, the, as the DFIs and the IFIs, it was quite clear that there's a strong need to join forces and to harmonize. It's in our own interest because it reduces our transaction costs. It's in the interest of our clients because we avoided that they're confronted with different kinds of reporting requirements because it comes at a cost to report because the data that we are using is coming from our clients. So having said that, um, uh, no, I would like also to make um, another point, uh, because we are very proud uh, in terms of mobilising uh, private co-financing, because very recently we have concluded a partnership with the Climate Finance uh, Leadership Initiative, and uh, we are very much uh, hopeful that uh, jointly that the big industry, the banking industry, we will make a major impact with regard to climate finance, and, and I think that's a major step forward that they decided to work with us as a group of bilateral DFIs and vice versa. So i like to conclude um, today's event uh, by thanking the panelists, by thanking the audience for coming, and uh, I'm very grateful also to Dan and his team for hosting us uh, uh, today, and uh, I now kindly invite you to drinks. and. Uh, to continue with the debate and uh, to talk a little bit more as uh, then uh, would like uh, to discuss it uh, the wise person's report and uh, and the future of the dfi thank you very much